0: Well, can I add, isn't this fantastic? Uh, this is so wonderful. Uh, it's a first step in regathering together. It's a big step, though, isn't it, uh, to be together like this? And uh, great, great to see you all here. Great to see those uh, out in the foyer. And um, great to have you tuning in from home, those who are listening. And wonderfully, today the Lord has brought us uh, an incredible passage. Every passage is incredible, isn't it? But this, this passage is filled with treasure the treasures, the riches of what our Lord Jesus has done for us, because it takes us to the very core, the very heart of what Christianity is all about. Uh, so let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you so much to you, for your goodness to us in so many, so many, so many ways. And we look forward to thinking about many of those this morning. Uh, but we particularly thank you, Father, for your means of grace to us, for the gifts that you have given us that keep us strong in the faith and growing and knowing you and moving forward. Uh, Father, we thank you for the gift of gathering together physically, for the gift of song, for the gift of prayer, for the gift of being family together, for the gift of your word. And Father, this morning as we hear from your word, please speak to us as you promise you will. And please speak to us in such a way it changes our hearts and our minds and the way that we live. Please transform us from the inside out. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I reckon every uh, family has at some stage when their kids were little tiny tots had this toy. And it's the toy that's either a sphere or a cube, but on each of the surfaces there's a hole. And each hole is a different shaped hole. So there's a square hole, there's a triangle hole, there's a star hole, and there's blocks that go along with it corresponding to the holes. And the little tiny kid is supposed to learn... ah. Only the square goes in the square hole and the star goes in the star hole. There's only one solution for each hole, one block that hits each hole, one solution to the problem. Now, when it comes to humanity's problem, and can I say our problem is great, our problem is terrifyingly terrible, there is only one solution. When it comes to humanity's problem, that is, we have turned our backs on God, walked away rebelled against him, lived our own way, not honoured him as the Lord, not obeyed him as our God, not thanked him for the life and everything that he has given us, and so have fallen from our position of glory and rule over the universe under him, which we heard last week, so been estranged from God, so stand under his judgment and face death, and not just death, but an eternity away from him. When it comes to that problem, Humanity's terrible, terrible problem. There is only one solution. And the one and only solution clearly presented in the Bible is this, the cross of Jesus Christ. It's a cross that fits the cross-shaped hole. But not just that a man died. No, 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 no. That God the Son became a man and died in our place. God became a human being while remaining fully God. And this fully human, fully divine one, the God-man, died in our place. That's the big emphasis in this passage. The death of God who became a man, who became a human, who became one of us in our place. Humanity's problem, our problem, my problem, your problem, is a gaping black hole and it's a hole that is shaped like a cross. The only solution to the problem is that God became a man and died on the cross in our place. There is a door to salvation. A way that can be opened into relationship with God. A way that can be opened through death and into heaven itself. But that door has one key. And this key is unique. There is no other key like it. No other way to salvation. No other key that unlocks the door. And that key is the cross of Jesus. The death of God the Son is a man for us. But why? 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 Why is the cross of Jesus the one and only necessary solution? Why is it necessary that God had to become a man to die for us on the cross? Why is that the key that unlocks the lock? Well, in our passage today, there are two big reasons given. And the first is this. God's solution fits with who God is. God's solution fits with who God is. And the second is, God's solution deals with our need. God's solution deals with our need. So we're going to look at the passage under these two big headings. God's solution, the cross, fits with who God is, verses 10 to 13. And then secondly, God's solution, the cross, fits with our need, the remaining verses. But as we look at everything under these two headings, we're going to stop a number of times along the way and look at the incredible riches that we have in Jesus. We're going to turn this treasure over in our hands and reflect and enjoy, and at the end, come to a final warning for us. So, why is the cross of Jesus the one and only necessary solution to our terrible problem? Why is it necessary that God the Son come as a man to die for us? Well, firstly, because the solution fits with who God is. Now, I think when we think about the cross of Jesus, we quickly jump to the second point. How the cross of Jesus deals with my need. But for God, while that is absolutely essential, there's something even more crucial something even more critical and fundamental. It's crucial that the cross fits with who God is. God will not, God cannot do anything that is inconsistent with himself, with his character, with his nature, with his being, with who he is. He will always only do what is right and fitting and appropriate to his character and nature and being. And verses 10 to 13... While they contain a great deal about what the cross of Jesus means for us, they are particularly concerned with how God's solution fits with who He is. And it's captured in one key word, and that word is fitting. The Lord's greatest concern, His greatest concern, is that what He does is fitting, appropriate. Have a look at verse 10. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting. That God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. God's key goal here is right at the beginning of the verse and flows on from last week. God's goal is to bring many sons and daughters to glory. We heard that last week. To create a glorious family of God's children who will rule the universe for all eternity under God. But crucial for God achieving this, critical in God achieving this, is the manner in which God does it. And the manner in which God does it is a fitting manner, an appropriate manner. Verse 10, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God. And fitting here doesn't mean that Fitting in the sense that something or someone outside of God looks at the actions of God in the cross and declares them, well, that's appropriate, that's fitting. Someone outside standing in judgment on God and determining whether he has acted appropriately. No, 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 no. You know, like someone might look at us, how we dress, how we act, what we say and say, well, that's not very fitting. That's not very appropriate. An outsider looking at you. No, no. When it speaks of fitting here, It is God telling us that He deems His actions are fitting to who He is. God telling us that His work on the cross is the right and appropriate action of Him, this God, perfectly consistent with Him. It fits with His character, with His being, with His Godness, with who He is. This is the appropriate thing for this God to do. And who is this God? Verse 10, the one for whom and through whom everything exists you hear that given that this God is the one who rules it all who owns it all who creates it all for whom it all exists the only one who has always been the only one who will always be the eternal all powerful creator ruler of all things since God is this God it is fitting that this almighty God should save the universe through the death of his son in order to make us his holy and glorious family now don't we think the opposite naturally Wouldn't we think if someone has rule and position and power and honor, it's an undignified thing for them to step down and act like a normal person? Or even more inappropriate and unfitting for them to suffer and be humiliated for normal people. That doesn't sound fitting at all for someone of importance and power. But this is the kind of God that the true living God is. It is fitting for this God to take loving action that costs him everything action in which his son becomes one of us and suffers for us to make us holy and part of his family the events of God coming to earth as a man and dying on the cross for us are not God doing something unusual to who he normally is not something out of character no this is God being the God that he is this is totally consistent with his very character and being for our God is love Our God is justice, but he is love. God becoming a man to die to save us, to make us his sons and daughters for all eternity, is the perfectly appropriate action of the one true God of all love. The cross is loving, just, but loving. And God says it's fitting. It fits perfectly with who he is. For this is our God, the servant king of overflowing love. And what is the nature of... Of this fitting action? Well let's take a little closer look at the Lord's loving action of God the Son dying for us. What's going on as he dies on the cross? Look again at verse 10 and how it describes the work of Jesus. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory it was fitting that God for whom, through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. The writer of the Hebrews calls Jesus the pioneer of our salvation. And the word pioneer here is a word that means something like champion pioneer. Two aspects bound together, champion pioneer. He's our champion, the one who fights for you, the one who wins on your behalf, the one who opens the way for you, and our pioneer, the one who goes ahead, the one who goes first but who then leads so that you can be drawn along and follow the path that they have pioneered. They forge ahead but you go where they have gone. Jesus is both champion and pioneer, champion pioneer. He is the champion who defeats the enemy of death that we could not defeat. He wins on behalf of humanity so that we can become what we were made to be, glorious children. And he's our pioneer. He goes ahead of us to take us where he has gone, to become holy as he is holy, to become holy, the family of God, as he is the family of God. To be restored to full humanity, as he is the fully human human. To rule the world, the universe, under God, as he rules. He is our champion, pioneer. Imagine back in the days um, of the Antarctic expeditions. You know, think, think Shackleton. Can you imagine trudging across Antarctica, exploring that vast, terrifying wilderness? You've been on an expedition but it's gone badly. Provisions are low, your health is failing, you're getting frostbite in your fingers and toes, you've got sickness, you cannot go on. You cannot go on. If they leave you, you were just left to die in in the ice and the snow. But your leader, what they do, is they move the provisions from one of the provision sleds and stack them onto the others, and then they put you on that sled and they bundle you up, they wrap you up tight and warm, they strap you down, and the leader himself drags you drags you through that wilderness, through the sleet and the ice and the snow. Sometimes there's big snow banks that he's just pushing through his body, through on your behalf, pushing on. He's your pioneer, dragging you behind, taking you where he is going, to the place of safety. And your champion, he is the one absorbing the pain. He's the one absorbing the suffering and agony and pushing on and difficulty on your behalf. The champion pioneer taking you to salvation that's Jesus and the way that Jesus does it through suffering in fact in verse 10 it says that Jesus was made perfect through what he suffered now don't you straight away think what wasn't Jesus always perfect even before he suffered didn't he always live a sinless life and that's the right instinct the Greek word used there translated perfect is a word often used frequently in the Greek Old Testament for the consecrating of a priest for office, making them holy in the sense of setting them aside for their unique holy job under God. Before being the priest, the priest was not perfect in the sense that they had not yet been consecrated as a priest set aside for that task. But once the priest had been consecrated through various rituals, through the shedding of blood, they were now holy, They were now perfect in the sense that they had been set aside for this holy duty. Same for Jesus. He was perfected for his priestly service by becoming what he was not before. A human. A human who suffered on behalf of humans. In eternity past, God the Son could not have suffered on our behalf and borne our sins as a substitute. To be our high priest, our sacrifice, he had to become a human being. To be set aside for the high priestly duty of making us holy by becoming one of us and suffering for us in our place. See, Jesus was always morally perfect, always perfect in his obedience to God, always sinless in every aspect of his life, unlike us. But he had to be made perfect in the sense of being set aside for this high priestly task so he could make us holy and he did that by becoming one of us by becoming a human and suffering and dying in our place through his incarnation his humiliations his sufferings his death he is set aside for the task of verse 11 he is made holy to make us holy that is he is set aside as the holy high priest so that he can carry out this high priestly task of purifying us from sin and making us holy, a holy, glorious family of God. And so verse 11, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. The Lord made us. We turned our backs on him and rebelled and wanted nothing to do with him, and yet he took on flesh and became one of us, a man like us, in solidarity with us to save us and make us holy so that now he can say, I'm not ashamed. Jesus can say, I'm not ashamed to call us you brothers and sisters. And God thinks this is fitting. This is the appropriate action of God to become a man and suffer and die to make us family with him and be all that we are designed to be under God as his children forever. Only Jesus coming as a man can be the solution to our problem. To make us holy, set apart for God, Jesus had to become holy as the perfect high priest and he could only be that by becoming a human. To make us brothers and sisters, Jesus had to be human so he could be our brother and he remains human for all eternity, fully God and fully man. He had to be the champion who wins before us, the pioneer who goes ahead of us to take us to be what he is, a holy family under God. Jesus, fully God, fully human, is the only answer, the fitting answer according to God, totally consistent with who God is, for God is love. What is the result of this fitting action of God? We've already seen the Lord's goal is to create a glorious family. That's the result, but let's zoom in a little closer. Verse 11, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. The Lord God, when you come to trust in Jesus, becomes your heavenly Father. Jesus becomes your brother and we become family. Is there anything more profound than this? To be the spiritual brother or sister of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be part of his family. This is the one of the most fundamental pieces of identity, of right identity. How do you see yourself? How do you think of yourself? Who are you? the most fundamental, one of the most fundamental things a Christian is to think of themselves and see themselves is this. God is my father. Jesus is my brother. And every Christian is my brother or sister too. And the writer of the Hebrews wants us to, to believe, to know, to understand this so fully. He stacks Old Testament verses on top of each other to slam dunk this point. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. And the first is from Psalm 22, which was read for us by Lorraine. Remember, Psalm 22 is the psalm that Jesus quotes as he's hanging, dying on the cross. Because the first half of the psalm is a prophecy about how the Messiah, the King, will suffer and die. But the second half of the psalm switches tone. It's a prophecy about the Messiah, the King, Jesus, will be victorious and resurrected. And the quote here in verse 12 in Hebrews is the very first verse of that victorious second half of the psalm. Have a look at verse 12. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly I will sing your praises. The resurrected and victorious Jesus will declare God's name to his brothers and sisters and sing God's praises in the assembly. And the word assembly there is gathering, is church. Jesus' victory by his death and resurrection creates a family, a gathering of God's people who belong to each other, creates the church, the assembly, the gathering. And Jesus is amongst us in this gathering, declaring the praises of his Father who has given him victory in his resurrection. The second and third Old Testament quotes there are both from Isaiah 8. The first one... I'll put my trust in him, is in its first instance just Isaiah saying, I, I will trust the Lord despite this difficult circumstance. But Isaiah foreshadows Jesus and so the writer to the Hebrews here takes the quote as Jesus declaring, I trust God, I trust my Father. But then the preacher of the Hebrews quotes for the very next verse in Isaiah 8, Here I am, here am I, and the children God has given me. Jesus, the son who trusts his father, declares that his father has given him children, has given him a family. God has gifted Jesus with family through this plan of God the Son becoming a man, suffering, dying as a champion pioneer to make us holy family. God has gifted Jesus with family. The very heart of God is to create family, a glorious family. Brothers and sisters who gather together and love each other and serve each other and him and who are destined to rule the universe together under God. God our Father, Jesus our brother, every Christian our brother or sister and he does it through God the Son becoming a man and dying in our place as our champion pioneer and God says that's fitting. That is the appropriate thing for the almighty God to do to sacrifice everything in love to make us family together. Now just slow down here and ponder this treasure. (laughs) Jesus is not ashamed to call you sister. Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother. People may be absolutely ashamed of you, but Jesus is not. People may neglect you and mistreat you and ridicule you and overlook you, but Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother. Jesus is not ashamed to call you sister. You may not have a person in the world who, who is close to you in the way that you wish. You may feel terribly alone, but Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother. Jesus is not ashamed to call you sister. What riches we have, what comfort we have. I'm a child of God, a brother, a sister of Jesus. I'm family with the Most High God. Jesus is not ashamed to me. When people or the circumstances of life or the spiritual forces gather around me like bullies in the playground to mock me and belittle me and threaten me. Jesus, my big brother, stands at my side. The Lord Jesus, and he is not ashamed of me. He is my brother. We are family by his incredible generous sacrifice. And God has deemed it fitting because he is the God of love. But in addition, it's not just Jesus who is my brother or sister. Jesus became a man and died to create family. A gathering of God's people who are growing to be what we will be one day, holy and glorious. And as we gather together, Jesus is in our midst by his spirit, by his word, declaring the praises of God. And we join together with him. What riches we have as a family in gathering together. When God looks at the cross, what is it that God is primarily concerned about? that this is fitting, that this is appropriate to who he is, that this is at one with his character. God the Son, becoming our man, a champion pioneer through death, who through suffering makes is made our holy priest, who now makes us holy and glorious children. When God is most being God, he comes as a man and he suffers and dies to make us a holy, glorious family. This is not the alien work of God, this is the fitting work of God. Slow down again and consider the riches here. My salvation never rests on me. Your salvation never rests on you. I could never save myself. As we know, our salvation comes from Jesus. He's the champion and pioneer. He saves me. My eternal relationship with God rests on what he has done. But our confidence can be traced back even further than this. What Jesus did on the cross finds its basis in the very character and nature of God, in who God is. God, the God of perfect and profound love and justice and goodness. Jesus becoming a man and coming to die to save us flows from who God is. It fits with who God is, which means my salvation ultimately rests in the changelessness of God. Rests in the very character and being of God itself. It rests in the fact that He is the loving, good, serving, sacrificing God. Our salvation is secure because it rests in the reality that God is eternally the servant king of absolute love. So keep looking to Jesus as your champion and pioneer and find great confidence because it rests in who God is and not in who we are. Why is the cross of Jesus the one and only necessary solution? Why did God the Son need to become a man? Why is that the solution? Well, firstly, because it fits with who God is. That's why the key fits the lock. Secondly, why is the cross of Jesus, the death of God, the Son of the Man, the only solution? Because God's solution fits with our need. Verses 14 to 18 now turn intentionally where we would have gone first, I think, most probably. To how God's solution, the cross, deals with my need. God the Son became a man, died on the cross to save us. Why is he so essential? Well, two parts to our need in this little section, and the first is this: to free us from death. Why did the God of the Son come as a man to die? Verse fourteen: Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Why did God the Son have to become a man to die? To save us from death and the devil and the fear of death. Since we humans, since we have flesh and blood, Jesus became a human too. Shared our humanity, took on flesh and blood. So that by his death on our behalf, a human in the place of humans, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. How does the devil hold the power of death? Well, the the devil holds the power of death because he is the accuser. It's in that the devil continually comes before God and and accuses us before God and says, God, you must punish them for their sin. Look at the terrible things they have thought. Look at the terrible things they have done. Look at the motives in their heart. Punish them accordingly for their sin. And because God is the God of justice, he will condemn us for our sin. The devil is always accusing humanity. And so we're afraid of death, rightly afraid of death. And aren't we afraid of death even more lately? Because death has come near in an invisible virus. But in his death, Jesus pays for our sin. And God no longer needs to condemn us. My sin is gone. Jesus has paid for it. And so I now no longer stand under God's condemnation. Jesus has dealt with it. And so the devil's power over death is taken away. He can no longer accuse because there's nothing to accuse us of. He's impotent. His power is broken. And so we are freed from slavery to death and the fear of death because of the death of a human in our place. A human who could substitute for humans but a human who is the God of infinite worth that can pay for the sins of all people. The God-man dies in our place, the only solution to death. A human for humans and simultaneously God who can pay for all sin. And verse 16 just makes the point, God didn't do this for angels. <laughs> he did it for humans, for the descendants of Abraham, those who, like Abraham, have faith. God's plan is centered around humanity to lift up us, us up, as we heard last week, to our position of glory. Now slow down again here. This is a treasure. Because Jesus has paid for our sin, God no longer will condemn us. And so we are freed from the fear of death, from slavery to death. His death defeats death for us and so we no longer need to fear death. Because of Jesus, the sting has been plucked. There's an old hymn, uh, many of you will remember. It goes like this. When I tread the verge of Jordan... Bid my anxious fears subside, death of death and hell's destruction, land me safe on Canaan's side. It's an oldie nowadays. When I come to that moment and I'm looking across the river of death, to the promised land of heaven on the other side, there will be anxiety. But I don't need to be too anxious because in Jesus I have the death of death. I have hell's destruction. And he will take me safely across death to to land me safe on heaven's side, to, to an eternal reality and joy far greater than this life. Incredible comfort. In our present season, the awareness of death is heightened. There's a deadly virus moving around our community. Death is very near us every day. It always has been. It feels more so now, and perhaps it is more so now. We can be afraid. Some level of fear is appropriate. Death is a terrible thing but we don't need to be too afraid. If we are Christians, then we are Jesus' brothers. Our trust is in him, and then he has destroyed death and condemnation on our behalf. We will live again forever with him, even with he die, if, when we die. So we don't need to be afraid of death, because we have solid hope. There's a great gospel preacher by the name of uh, Dwight L. Moody. In a sermon uh, he once preached, someday you will read in the papers that Moody is dead. He was, he was a very famous preacher someday you'll read in the papers that moody is dead don't you believe a word of it i'll be more alive than i am right now (laughs) because of jesus if you're not a christian yet we love that you are with us this morning and thinking into these important things please come to jesus in jesus we have the death of death the only solution to death the one who defeats death for you god the son became a man died on the cross to save us why is this so essential firstly to free us from death secondly God the son needed to come as a man to die to atone for our sins verse 17 for this reason Jesus had to be made like them fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus came as a merciful and faithful high priest. And a high priest is a go-between, a mediator who stands between God and the people. In the Old Testament, God set up this system because God is so holy and people are so sinful that sinful people could not be in the presence of the holy God without a mediator, a go-between, someone who stands between. And that one, that high priest, must be holy. And so the whole high priest was set apart through ritual to be this mediator, this go-between. But in the Old Testament, they themselves were sinners. And the sacrifices they brought were merely animals and so they could never be the perfect mediator. But now Jesus has come, merciful, faithful high priest, God become a man as the go-between. The one who is fully God and so can represent God perfectly to man. The one who is fully man and so can represent man perfectly to God. The one who is merciful because he's experienced everything it is to suffer and be tempted as a human being yet without sin. And this merciful and faithful one is actually able to make atonement for sins. And that word there, atonement, is a critical one. The word is propitiation. Jesus, the God-man high priest, is able to make propitiation for sins. That is, he's actually able to deal with God's righteous anger towards us for the sin we have committed. Not just deal with our sin, but deal with God's just, righteous, holy anger towards us for the sin we have committed. Jesus is actually able to do with this Because Jesus as the great high priest brings the greatest sacrifice of himself and makes that sacrifice. And so God's anger, instead of falling on us, falls upon him in our place. God's anger pours upon Jesus so there is none left for us who trust him. It's fully absorbed in his son. In Greek mythology there's a story about Agamemnon. Uh, King of kings in Greece, and there's a slight done to him by Paris, and so he goes to war against Troy. He gathers all the armies of the Greek nation states, the commanders, the generals, the kings, and they uh, get all their fleet together, but there's no wind. And the reason that there's no wind, according to the story, is that he has killed, Agamemnon has killed a sacred deer of Artemis, the god, and Artemis is angry. There's anger of Artemis towards Agamemnon and so there's no wind, they can't sail the fleet. The priest Calchas hears from Artemis and works that out and says to Agamemnon, this is the reason why and so a sacrifice must be made, a sacrifice to appease the anger of Artemis the god. And the sacrifice must be a big one and because you have slighted Artemis, you must pay, it must be your daughter, Iphigenia. And so Agamemnon tricks his wife and daughter to come to where they are by promising her in marriage to Achilles. Gets there, Iphigenia is to be sacrificed. Now, the story diverges in different parts at that point. But you get the, the picture. The gods were not propitious, they were angry. But the only way that anger could be turned aside was to be turned onto a sacrifice, a human sacrifice. Christianity is the same but very, very different. The same in that God is angry with us, but not often a whim because we've done something silly or naughty. God is rightly, justly angry with us for our rebellion against him and our wickedness towards him and one another. Not capricious like the Greek gods, rightly, justly angry. Same in that God requires sacrifice To absorb his anger, to turn aside his anger rightly directed towards us onto another, to absorb and deal with his holy righteous anger. Only sacrifice will work. Different, different in that, the sacrifice that God requires is provided by him and not by us. And the sacrifice that God provides is him. God, requiring a sacrifice, provides himself as that sacrifice to deal with his anger that should be directed towards us for our sin. But there is no anger left because it's fallen on his son. God atones for our sin, propitiates our sin. God's anger fully absorbed in Jesus. So now we can become family, glorious children of God. Only Jesus, God and man, can be the high priest we need to make the sacrifice we need to atone for our sins. And verse 18, he helps us every day in all our sufferings and difficulties and temptations. More of this as the book of Hebrews goes on. He knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to be tempted fully, yet he did not sin. And now he can help us in our sufferings and temptations. See again how the solution matches the problem. It deals with our need. It unlocks the door of salvation. Why is the cross of Jesus the one and only necessary solution? Well, it fits with who God is. And it deals with our need. The only solution to humanity's problem, the one key. But to finish, a final reflection on the riches that we have in Jesus, but also a challenge. If you have Jesus, you have everything. <laughs> You have the key that unlocks the door to salvation. You have a champion pioneer who has defeated death for you. You have a high priest who has atoned for your sin, dealing with God's righteous anger to make you holy. You have a brother who has drawn you into his family. You have a God whose very character and nature means that he has served you, suffered for you to make his glorious children so that you might rule together under him, with him forever. If you have Jesus, you have everything. You might be poor. You might be sick, you might be in pain, you might be suffering, you might be anxious, you might be lonely. But if you have Jesus, you actually have everything. And eventually all that poverty and sickness and pain and suffering and anxiety and loneliness will be stripped away forever and ever. If you have Jesus, you have everything. You have riches beyond measure. You have the only key that matters. But the parting challenge is this. It's the challenge of the whole book of Hebrews. If you let go of Jesus, you let go of everything. You throw away the one key of salvation and there's no entry through the door. You imagine you wake up one night and, and there's smoke filling your room and there's heat everywhere and you turn, fire, fire across your floors, your carpet's up, your curtains, the windows are engulfed, it's wrapping across the room but you have a door to your room. It's locked. Now why you lock the door of your room, I don't know. But it's, it's locked. There's only one key. Do you have the key? Do you have the key? Because if you do, you're safe. But if you don't, you're not getting out. God's judgment is coming. And all will be lost in the eternal blaze unless they enter through that one door of salvation. There is one key to open that one door and escape destruction and into the riches that Jesus has planned for us for all eternity. Jesus, he is the key. As we've heard over the last few weeks, the book of Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians. Jews had become Christians who were really copying it. It was hard and they attempted to go back. Let go of Jesus and go back to being a Jew where it was easier. And so the book of the Hebrews is written to warn them, hold fast to Jesus. If you let go of Jesus, you have lost everything. You have nothing. You let go of Jesus, you've thrown away, you have given up the key of salvation. Whatever you do, don't let go of Jesus. COVID and its impact on physically gathering together has been a massive spiritual danger to us. Massive spiritual danger. I dare say across our country, there will be many Christians who have succumbed to the spiritual danger and no longer hold fast to Jesus. I pray that's not the case. Likely is. Who have let go, who have lost the key, and so have lost everything. And the danger is not over. The way we come out of lockdown, the way we come out of these restrictions and into normal life, I think is going to have a significant impact on how we go on in our Christian life. The way we prioritise church and growth group and daily Bible reading and prayer and serving and loving and hospitality over the next weeks and next months I think will likely shape the way we live our Christian life for the next years for the next decade and we either set ourselves up to hold fast to Jesus to hang on or we set ourselves up to hold loosely to Jesus which is very very dangerous we need iron grips And so can I encourage you to do whatever it takes, hold fast to Jesus. Whatever it takes to help those around you, those you care about, hold fast to Jesus. The danger isn't over. Don't let go of Jesus, he's everything. The death of God the Son as a man in our place is the only solution, the one key. Whatever you do, hold fast. Let's pray. Oh Father, we thank you so much that it is fitting that you would love us like this for it's your very character and nature that your son would become and remain a human forevermore while still being fully God. Thank you, Father, that he would step under your judgment, that he would absorb your anger, that he would cleanse us from all sin and make us holy, that he would free us from death, that he would make us family, your glorious children, and that he would lift us up to rule the universe under you for all eternity as we're intended to be. Father, what an incredible thing that you would love us like this, that you would bind your personal eternal destiny to us in love like this. Uh, thank you that it's your very nature to do this. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.